you're alive. Well, it's good to see you all. Thank you for uh, coming to the afternoon session. As you uh, very well know, uh, we're going to be here talking about Christianity and feminism. Uh, but before I get into that, let me tell you about Seely. Seely is the self-study program in apologetics offered by Southern Evangelical Seminary. So it's completely self-study, completely online. We'll go through a series of modules and take quizzes, after which everything is completed, you will obtain a certificate in apologetics. And so if any one of you are interested in uh, doing more apologetics, going into a little bit more depth than any of the speakers can do this weekend, then I would highly encourage you to check out Celia. For those of you who purchase Celia uh, between now and the end of the weekend, which is Sunday night, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there's a 30% discount off of Sealy. Okay, so um, if you are interested in doing that, the promotional code for that that you'll enter uh, in is CBC30. That's the promotional code that you will enter in to get your 30% discount. Okay, and if you have any more questions about that at any time, you can see me or you can see Simon or grab Adam Tucker as he, as you see him. Okay, but let's get on into feminism. Feminism and Christianity. So you might be asking, why study feminism? Well, why not study feminism is probably the first thing that can be said. But I think, too, that there are just so many things happening in the culture today. When you consider all of the ideas that are running around and all of the events that are happening, it requires us as Christians to be able to understand exactly what's going on. And to be quite honest with you, some of the things, most of the things that we're seeing in the culture today, you think about Bruce Jenner, right? You think about all of these lawsuits that are popping up in terms of gender neutrality and transgenderism and all of these different things. All of those cultural issues, they stem from a very fundamental understanding of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, um, more fundamentally what it doesn't mean to be human, right? So if we're going to understand those things... I'm sorry, did I give you a recording? Yes, it's on. Okay. Thank you. If we're to understand those things, and if we're going to think about them well, because you can understand something... You can misunderstand something and therefore think about it poorly. But that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in understanding something, and understanding requires thinking well about that thing. And so what I want to talk um, about today is feminism as a movement, and how feminism informs the things that we see today, a.k.a. Bruce Jenner, how feminism informs that, and how it informs what we think as Christians about these things. Okay, does that make sense? So uh, I've carved out a little bit of time at the end of this presentation for questions, but if you know me, you know you don't have to wait until the end. You can always insert and interject and add as you will, okay? So as this discussion unfolds, what I really want to do is take a historical look at feminism as it's unfolded in this country over the last 150, perhaps two hundred years. I'll say off the top that feminism is not an American export. It didn't start with America. But this session is contextualized to America because we're more readily, um, it's more readily apparent to us 
living in America, what the effects of feminism are. So feminism, the movement of feminism is is in effect a worldwide movement depending on worldview issues and those sorts of things. But what feminists are concerned with in perhaps an Eastern context are not the concerns that we have over here in the Western world. What the concerns of feminists are in um, a pantheistic culture is not the concerns that we have in a first world country. The, the type of things that concern feminists between first world countries and third world countries can be quite different. And so understanding that, understanding that feminism is not an American export, I'm still going to contextualize it to America. The second thing that I want to say something about as we go forward is, is philosophy. Philosophy always has to inform our conversations and our discussions because philosophy is the discipline that's concerned about thinking well. So you always want to be wary about someone who, who disdains philosophy when they're trying to discuss certain ideas. Um, want to say something about patriarchy? We've heard of that term before, patriarchy. Want to say something about sociology and ultimately Christianity. So it's a lot to cover, um, but let's go ahead and start. So I have a definition of feminism here. If I'm to say feminism, what is your understanding of feminism, your definition of feminism? Anyone have anything to offer? What is feminism? What do you think feminism is? The belief in equality of the sexes. Okay, good. Belief in equality of the sexes. Anyone else? Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm cheating. I pulled it up. Advocacy of women's rights on the grounds of political, social, and economic equality to men. Cheater. That's right. <laughs> Anyone else? I would almost say in this country in 2015, it's more than equality. It's more the females want a superior status Very good. to men. Very good. I mean, maybe textbook definitions uh -huh. of equality, but yeah. in our minds we think Something superior. a little bit elevated, right. Well, all of those things are right. Here's the broadest definition of feminism that any feminist would agree with. Okay, So it's the social and cultural movement beginning in the 19th century. Again, we're speaking about an American context beginning in the 19th century that sought to secure equal rights for women based on equality of the sexes. That's a broad definition, and unless you're a misogynist, you are not going to really disagree with this broad definition of feminism. Now, how it hashes out is that we all have different understandings of what equal rights looks like, right? We all have different understandings of what equality looks like, and we all have different understandings of what the sexes are, right? So very broadly, everyone will say that it's based on this idea that men and women should be treated equal, but what you see highlighted in red kind of hashes out the differences. So feminists disagree, even within the confines of feminism as a movement. There's a large amount of disagreement about what equal rights is and what that looks like. There's disagreement about equality, what that is and what it looks like. And there's even disagreement about what we would understand to be a very basic definition of what it means to be male and female. Okay, any questions? All of you, though, were right because as we get into it more, feminism has become the type of movement that seeks to elevate men, women over men, right? Okay, so historically, let's take a look at feminism as it has unfolded in this country over the last century and more. 
So feminism, when it emerged in America, was really concerned about very fundamental things. The right to vote, the right to enter into contract, and the right to own property, very generally speaking, right? So the first feminist, the early wave feminist, roughly early 19th century to 1920, we say 1920 because that's when women got the right to vote in this country. The very first wave of feminists, they were concerned about very fundamental things that anyone in a, in a democratic society would, would want, right? You, you want, if you were in a democratic society, then you should have the right to vote. And that's what the first feminists were very much concerned with. You should have the right, if, if the Constitution says that everyone has um, the opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, part of the pursuit of happiness is that you should be able to own property. You should be able to own things. So the first wave of feminists were very much concerned about those basic rights. Now, uh, it's earmarked to 1920, like I said, because that's when women got the right to vote. That's, that's very generally the first wave of feminism in this country. It's happened in different waves. After 1920 and between 45, 48, what happened? What, what happened in the world scene in the, in the 40s? There was a world war, right? So when the world war came to bear, feminism kind of died down a little bit because there were other concerns that were going on. We were sending men over to fight in the war. Women had to leave their homes and enter into the workforce. Between 1920 and 1940, let's say between 1920 and 1950, if you want to highball it, there were just concerns that were going on that quieted down feminists. And after the war, after the men came back, after the women were already in the workforce, the question was, well, what are we going to do with all these women? Should they go back home? That was the question, right? So after World War II, we enter into another wave of feminism, second wave feminism. Second wave feminism, they did more than, than focus their concerns on what the first wave was concerned about because... If you consider what was happening in this country in the 1950s and beyond, the second wave of feminism emerged in a different social context. So if you consider the sexual revolution, right, of the 60s, free love and free, all of that happened in the midst of the second wave of feminism. And so there were just different ideas going on about sexuality and who should be having sex and who shouldn't be. All of that was changing in the second wave of feminism. That's not something that the first wave even entered into conversation about. Within the solidifying of the second wave of feminism, we had certain laws that hit the books in this country. So marriage became legal in 1970 in this country. Before 1970, marriage was illegal in this country. Did you know that? Before 1970, it was marriage was considered um, part of adversarial law. You had to prove that your spouse was doing something in order to be divorced in this country. And if you could not prove it, then you would not have a legal right to divorce. After 1970, well, in 1970 was the introduction of no-fault divorce, which is what? Well, you just, you know, irreconcilable differences. Oh, yeah. You, you know, can, was it Reagan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can divorce 
for any reason or no reason at all. That's when divorce became legal in the, legal in this country in 1970. So this is right in the second wave. You think that that's something that the feminists would be very much concerned with? So they were talking about those sorts of things. In 1973, in this country, what happened? Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade. So that Roe v. Wade was 1973, but from the early 20s, from the early 1920s, that's really when you had this breakdown in sexual mores. So if you consider Hugh Hefner and his, his, you consider Hugh Hefner, he was in this period. So he was changing the culture's ideas of sexuality. In 1973, we had Roe v. Wade, where Roe v. Wade made it easy. Roe v. Wade made it possible to get rid of the results of having sex and not wanting the consequences. That's what basically Roe v. Wade did. Before Roe v. Wade, it was illegal to terminate the results of sexual activity, right? Mm -hmm. After Roe v. Wade, it, it became legal. And all of that is very much concerned uh, and tied with the changing ideas of sexuality, right? So if you have a system in which it's now legal to divorce, and it's now legal to terminate your pregnancy, if you would like, or kill the baby. If it's now legal to do that, all, all of these things are very much things that concern women, right? Because women are the only ones that get pregnant. Therefore, women are the only ones who have abortions. Women, very generally speaking, are the ones that get the negative effects of a divorce, right? More so than men on the average, right? So all of these things are happening in the culture and it's changing what the feminists were talking about. Make sense? One other thing, key thing, many things happen. I mean, right in the midst of this is the civil rights movement as well. So there's a lot of things happening in this country, right in the midst of the second wave of feminism. But politically, there were certain laws and ideas changing that set up the situation for the prison enterprise to now become a for-profit for enterprise. So things, the ball starts rolling and things start happening in the culture that ultimately lead to the end result of prison becoming a corporate endeavor. And in any corporate endeavor, you always have to keep the customers coming back, don't you? Right? So, in the midst of the second wave of feminism, we had the introduction of the legality of divorce. We had Roe v. Wade. Uh, we had a system set up to where we need to make sure that we keep making profit out of the prison industry. So, are you all making those connections? So, if you always need a consumer to keep the prisons going, you always want to set up conditions and situations that get people to prison. So we're going to see as, and, and this is kind of going um, further than this slide um, details right now, but what we're going to see is that the changing ideas in the culture set up a system where children were negatively affected and as a result of being negatively affected, that increased their chances of being incarcerated, and that made the conditions right to continue 
the corporation of prisons in this country. Does all that make sense? So there's also a third wave of feminism. Uh, the third wave feminists really critique the second wave feminists for being short-sighted. So I mentioned earlier that what feminism looks like in a first world country is different than what it looks like in a third world country. What feminism looks like in our culture is different than what it would look like in another culture. The third wave feminists critiqued the second wave feminists because the second wave feminists tended to focus on concerns that were uniquely um, invested into by by white women in America, right? So uh, at the third wave feminists, you had the black feminists coming in, you had the the Indian feminists coming in, you had all of these different cultural contexts under which to understand what feminism was. And so the third wave, very generally speaking, critiqued the second wave for being short-sighted. There's different sorts of females on this planet that go through different sorts of things, and so a a, a broad feminism, an accurate feminism, has to take that into account. It's in-house fighting, the third wave feminists. But here's the thing, we now have a generation of adults, and some of you are a little bit younger, but we now have a generation of adults who have lived in feminist wave, in feminism waves. So we now have a good number of people who know what the world was like before the second wave hit, and those same people know what the world is like after the second wave has hit. So you're old enough, you're old enough to know you were a young child, but you're old enough to know what it was to be part of a nuclear family. And even if you weren't part of that, you had a whole lot of people around you that were in a nuclear family. But you also know what it's like, the effects of not having that nuclear family. Or like Because we have situations now where actually the nuclear family is an abnormality now, whereas before it wasn't. That's only because, and my argument, my argument is that is that results from the working out of feminism in this culture. Feminism is not just an idea. All ideas have consequences, and so we're now dealing with that. And we're going to talk about what that looks like today. But again, I'm setting the stage so that we can understand how to think about these things, because if we can think about them well, it informs our analysis of the symptoms. Okay. So often the act of speaking about something, it requires setting the stage to even have the discussion. I'm always going to maintain that setting the stage is going to be a philosophical stage. Because what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman are deeply, not just philosophical, but deeply philosophical um, ideas. The feminist starting point is the denial of human nature as a metaphysical reality. And that's a whole lot of words, but I'm going to talk about that. Really, feminism, they start with the idea that there is no universal human nature. And again, I'm speaking generally. So this is only generally, this is what feminists think. But you're going to find feminists who who differ, because not everyone... Uh, affirms the very same things, but generally speaking, the type of feminism that we're dealing with today, it starts by denying human nature as a real thing. They say that human nature is a social construction. What it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman is just 
a combination of different social ideas. So we have kind of just decided that women should stay home and be with the kids. There's really no reason for it over and above. Societies have just organized it to be that way. That's what you'll hear commonplace nowadays. Go ahead. So there's it's, it's no purpose to the way we are made. That is the feminist starting point. That's the feminist starting point. We're going to see that's the transgender's starting point. That is also the starting starting point. A bit nuanced, but it's also the starting point for those who are pro-abortion. We're going to talk about that. So what we think about human nature is going to, it's going to set the stage for how we think about these things. We as Christians deny that. We as Christians deny that what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, can be grounded and sourced in social functions. We think that there's something very relevant that has nothing to do with what society says. Am I agreed? You agree? Okay. So take a look at this. I want to talk about the functional definition of a thing versus the essential definition of a thing. And you may have seen this before. But if you took, look in the top left, you see what? You see a spoon. So a spoon is a spoon by definition. A spoon is only a spoon because it is the thing that helps you eat soup well, right? If it doesn't help you eat soup well, it's not a good spoon. It's a piece of metal, right? So when you are understanding certain things, you can define them based on the function that they serve or based on what that thing is. A spoon is only a spoon because of the function that it serves. In the absence of the function that it serves, it's not a good spoon. The other way to understand and define a thing concerns the essentiality of it. So you see a dog in the bottom right corner, right? A dog is not a dog because of the function that it serves. A dog is not a dog because it barks. Dog is not a dog because it eats slabs of meat. A dog is not a dog because it chases cats. If it did none of those things, it would still be a dog, right? Because what makes something a dog has to do with its canine nature. What makes something human has nothing to do with whether they can walk or talk or see. has nothing to do with how much... Um, cerebral activity they have. What makes someone human is because they've got a human nature. And in the absence of having a human nature, you don't have a human. So those are the two ways to define a thing. And you can see how it informs some of the discussions that we're having today. So in the abortion movement, those who are pro-abortion, how do you hear them speaking about fetuses? How do you hear them speaking about the unborn? Not human. Material. Cell. Yeah. They are not human because they can't do certain things. Mm. So it gives them their humanity based on their functionality. On their functionality. But we are not functionalists. We would say that the unborn is human. Why? Because it's created. Because it's got a human nature. A dog is a dog because it has a canine nature. A cat is a cat because it has a feline nature. We are essentialists. And so on the basis, and this is very much a philosophical high-level accounting of it, but we oppose abortion because we oppose the terminating 
of human nature. It's just because it's not convenient to you. But a baby kicks, and you know it's there. A baby kicks, and you know and it's and there. It its hand and, and even if it rolls around, it sure does. And even if it didn't do those things, it would still be human. So this is much different than the spoon. You all see the contrast? A spoon is only a spoon because of what it does. But a human is a human because of what it is. It's nature. Right? And so in the context of feminism, if you go back to the point that I made earlier, the feminist starting point is a functionalist starting point. It says that what it means to be human is just a combination of all of these functions that we've come up with. That's what makes someone a woman. And that's what makes someone a man under the feminist paradigm. But we deny that as... I think as rational people, not even Christians, but as rational people, we deny that because what we think what makes someone human has something to do with their natures. Well, you can see that on the most fundamental level. If you walk down to the nursery, an 18-month-old little girl will pick up a baby doll and hold it to mm-hmm. herself because, and even if they don't have any younger siblings, have never been around another child, that's right. Even their nature to do that. That's right. And a little boy will pick it up. It's like it's a truck. truck. That's <laughs> right. They would drive it around on the carpet. Right. Because that's what he does. Right. Right. That's just. And as you you know you consider to to think about these things more, all of what we would call the immorality evils of our day are basically irrational ideas you have to be irrational to accept some of the things that are going on today because just fundamentally it goes against our intuition and our common reasoning so as i said earlier functionalism it's the philosophical position that drives gender studies it drives transgender studies and it, den- it drives LGBT discussions, right? So, a transgendered person, someone who's, who's born a man, and you now are living your life as a woman, you, we can, it's pretty safe to say that you think being a woman has something to do with how you dress or your hair or how you carry yourself. We would say that being a woman has nothing to do with those things. It's because you've got it's because you've got an X chromosome, basically. You have an extra X chromosome and that's what makes you a woman. It doesn't matter if you look like a woman now. You're not a woman. You're just a feminized man. There's no such thing as a sex change. Where's the show? Absolutely. Why is there no such thing as a sex change? There's, a, there's such thing as a behavior change, but why is there no such thing as a sex change? Even though you'll hear it. Well, God, God, make you that way. Like, it's more than external. Yeah. It's, the inside, you can't. You can, there's no such thing. If you are a boy, you have an XY, you have XY chromosomes in every cell of your body, right? If you're a girl, you have a double X in every chromosome of your body. There's no way to get rid of the Y if you've got a Y. You can't get rid of it. Ergo, there's no such thing as a sex change. You can start acting in what you feel are ways that are representative of what it means to be a woman. You can start acting like that, but that doesn't change who you are. That's a behavior issue, right? The other one is a genetic, and one part of it is a genetic issue. Absolutely. And so, 
as we move on, so I said that functionalism is the thing that drives a lot of the debates today, but now let's talk about kind of the biology of it. So, I'm not going to keep it on this slide, but if I said to you, if I raise the distinction between sex and gender, sex and gender, we've heard those words before. So if I asked you, what is sex, what would you say? What is sex? Not the act. I'm saying I'm yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't talk about. Yeah. That. But um, what if if I said what what what's what's one sex? Male or female? Men. Right. What's one's gender? What would you say? Boy or girl. Masculine. Okay. So for sex, you would say male, female, and for gender, you would say. Masculine, okay, that's good. I like how you that up. So, essentially, right, because I understand what you all are saying. So, sex is a biological category, right? Sex has to do with your genes, your hormones, your genitalia. That's that's basically your sex. All things being equal, you can look at genes, you can look at hormones, and you could look at external genitalia, and you can come up with what someone's sex is. Right. There's even been studies that you can look at someone's brain tissue and come up with whether they're male or female. So one sex has something to do with their nature, right? Okay. Gender is not a biological category. Gender is fluid. So you all said masculine and feminine, uh, feminine traits. But in saying that, you're picking up this idea that how we act as a sex sometimes influences what people ascribe to, right? So there is and there are situations where you will see men sometimes acting very feminine. And we know what that looks like. It might not be politically correct to say it in every place we go, but we know what it looks like to see someone acting like a certain gender but being a particular sex. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So sex is biological, gender is fluid. But let me say this, gender, even though gender is important, it's quite true that society, they, societies come up with ways of acting that are appropriate for certain sexes, right? So in some cultures, how the women act as women can be different than in other cultures, women might act differently. Those are the sorts of things, gender, gender roles and gender stereotypes, those are the, the types of things that, by and large, a culture comes up with. But it's not as important as people think it is, because gender depends on sex. Sex comes before gender, gender doesn't come before sex. If there were no different sexes, if there, if, if there was no such thing as a female and every human in the world was a male, we wouldn't be talking about gender, would we? It would be very interesting, wouldn't it? It would be nothing, <laughs> right? If, if we lived in a world where there were only women, we wouldn't be talking about gender. We'd just be talking about women, right? So gender follows sex. Sex doesn't follow gender. 
gender would not even be a point of discussion if there were no different sexes. So you can kind of see the irrationality of the feminist starting point because they place so much primacy on the equality, the sameness of men and women, but yet they're still talking about gender. But you can't talk about gender unless you first understand that there's a differences between the sexes that need to be distilled. So it's kind of a self-defeating uh, uh, way of having the conversation. But that's the irrationality of it. In order to have these sorts of conversations, you do actually have to be self-contradicting and rational. Okay, so they, there, did you think that they put that forth purposely? Absolutely. That, that they blur that, that, that line to make sure that they have something to go with? Absolutely. Lines always, it doesn't matter what the issue is, lines of rationality always have to be blurred if you're trying to persuade people to follow you, right? You always have to leap back well, certain follow items you of to truth. something that is not correct. Right. Because you want them to be clear if you want them to follow to the truth. Correct. Correct, right? So in any endeavor, in any context, the point of getting people to buy into what you're saying is to give them the information that they need to buy into it. But you hold back information that you think will preclude them from buying into it. So when it comes to just the femi feminism and the movement, no one really talks about the distinctions, the real distinctions between sex and gender. Because if you start talking about it, you can very well see that the feminist starting point is false. There is a difference between men and women. It has something more to do than with just functions. It's something more deeper than that. Make sense? Do you think that that's what they use, these uh, pre-packaged slogans and stuff like that, just that they use these terms that, that they assign to certain things that have nothing to do with the matter and make it look uh, ethically neutral? Absolutely. So here's one of those slogans. This is from Bruce Jenner. I've always felt like a woman. He said that, right? So let me ask you a question, women. What does it feel like to be a woman? Can you tell me? It feels good. <laughs> feels good. But what does it feel like to be a woman? Do you feel like more? Do you feel more estrogen? Do you feel pink? Do you feel? <laughs> what does it really? Right. So that slogan. It's put forth in the society, but it has no real meaning. Right. I'm a woman, and I have no idea what it means to be exactly. like a woman. I just am a woman, and this is the difference between functionality and essentiality. Okay. It drives me crazy to listen to or watch a football game, and a woman's trying to be a man on announcing the football game. I've turned chance. I cannot. You don't stay. like seeing that. I do not like a woman. If she's going to be a woman. Call the game like a woman. Don't try to use a male's voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just one of my little quirks. It's a little yeah. pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, but a woman, she can call a football game mm -hmm. and use a feminine voice, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but not use try to use a male voice. Right, right. And just about all of your sports announcers that are women try to use the male gender voice. Yeah. I was just saying, just on the news the other day, one of the universities are trying to get rid of the gender pronouns that are he, she. They want it to all be her. They're trying to change the whole language of what we've ever been taught. Right. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Right. 
See, these are the sorts of things that you have to do, but that's very irrational. Because you can never get rid of the set, as long as there are two sexes that walk this earth, you won't ever be able to get rid of the ways that we have created to distinct them. You, you can't get rid of it. Um, so in North Carolina, there was an issue, and, and this is pervading the culture, but there was an issue, there was a trans, um, there was a trans that was attending the school. He was a male that was identifying as a woman and he wanted to be able to change in the same locker room as the other women, right? Okay. So they offered him a gender-neutral washroom and he didn't want that. That's the first thing. Why, why don't you want a gender-neutral washroom? So obviously it's really not so much about your feelings, you're trying to do something else. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you can clearly see, and this escaped no one's notice, but you can clearly see that this is a young boy that has on a wig. That's intuitive. And if you look at that young boy and think that he's a woman, then there's something wrong with you. Right? Because it's just rationally and intuitively available to all that a boy who wears a wig is not suddenly a woman. That's clear to all, but that's quite politically correct, right? Right. But it's clear to all. And there's this push in the culture to make what's clear to all unclear to unclear. all. Right? I was going to say that there is exactly. an incredible support. Uh, and it is, it is a, a, a big chunk of, of, of our society that is actually pushing for that. So it's amazing. It's amazing the push and the, how effective this yeah. this whole law is. It's bullying. Yeah, bullying. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. It's bullying. Um, but you brought up a good point about the, the, the words and the epithets and just the little things that people say in the so, culture that yeah. sound very deep and heavy, but when you kind of look at it, it means absolutely nothing. There is no real content to I feel like a woman as stated by women, right? If you said for the theological, I guess I'm married to a pastor, I sure. think theologically, sure. this is the oldest argument in the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, Satan yes. went to Eve on purpose, Absolutely. made her question what her husband had told her, what God had told her, and made it look, he blurred the lines from early on, yeah. she wanted exactly. to usurp her husband's yeah. authority yeah. about the not eating the fruit. It wasn't God. She was ultimately it was God. She was divine. Adam was the messenger to her. Right, right. She was usurping her husband's authority. Right, and from then, you know, it's and we just bought into it. But now it's like we're we're so far we're so upside down with our rationale. We are now living in an era where all of the seeds that have been planted for the last six decades are now coming to bear on the culture. But these things that are bearing in the culture have to do with ideas. So that's why it's important to just talk about the ideas that number one, we as Christians can think about them well and not be affected by the culture. But we can also 
bring these ideas to light when speaking to other people. One of the things that you can say, just what I said to you, like what if, if you come into um, someone that you're having a conversation with and they say that feeling thing, the simple thing to ask is, well, what does it feel like to be a woman? Can you tell me? And wait for them to say something. And if they're going to say something, it's going to default to the functionality. I've, I've always liked women's clothing. That and, doesn't mean and, anything. And that will be the next question. And, and? And then at the end of it, after they've gone through all of the functional you know, answers, you bring up the essence thing. Well, perhaps what it means to be a woman has nothing to do with function. Perhaps it goes deeper than what you think. So these are just kind of the part of being a good apologist is just asking really good questions. It's not really so much about arguing all the time and, and showcasing your intellectual prowess that's crazy. But part of being a good defender of the faith is just asking good questions and listening really well because a lot of people are just parroting what they've heard and they've not thought about it. So do you think that uh, this has been a well thought out plan that has been put in motion from decades ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you read the literature, they'll tell you that the LGBT agenda has unfolded over the years according to plan. According to plan. Right. So now in 2015, it's ripe to introduce same-sex marriage. They knew that a long time ago, but they just had to ago. put certain things in place. For it to be acceptable to the public. So this is all, and this is why we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Because all of these things at the end of the day, we can talk about them and we should talk about them, but at the end of the day, all of these things are very much human nature who are separate from God right. acting in the world. And that's all that it comes down to. Would you say sinful nature? Sinful nature, yeah. This sort of metaphysical dependence, the dependence between gender and sex, those things are not separate. Gender needs sex in a way that sex doesn't need gender. That type of dependence, that accounts for why a man who chooses to live his life as a woman does not have the same sort of life that a woman who chooses to live as a woman has. A man who chooses to live as a woman will never have the same type of life that a woman who chooses to live as a woman has. Period. And if they want to argue, Should just produce a child. Just Should produce it? a child. Or just, you know, just live as a woman. Is, that's true, not just in an anatomical sense, but that's true psychologically, that's true hormonally, that's true socially. Psychologically, women and men are not the same. Psychologically, we don't think the same. Sometimes we as women wonder what's wrong with you because you're not thinking right. That's not, they, they're, they're psychologically, men and women are different. So you can act and you can adopt and you can discard certain gender ways of living out life. But to do so is irrational because it goes against what hormonally you're ordered to do, 
women have estrogen, men have testosterone. If you're going to change it, you have to tanker and tinker with the, hormone, with the hormones, which is why hormone replacement therapy is necessary for those who want to go through with gender reassignment. You have to tinker with the hormones, but tinkering with the hormones means that hormones are significantly different, right, between the two. Psychologically, our brains are wired differently. We think differently, we process differently, we care about things differently. This idea that one can change their sex is a false idea because everything about our humanity is ordered to be a certain sex. Now, that's general. Of course we hear of situations where uh, individuals are perhaps born with um, uh, two types of genitalia. Of course we hear that, right? Of course we hear of situations where for because of a biological defect, and because of a biological anomaly, and those are quite medical ways of framing the issue, because of a defect, sometimes there are situations where it might not be clear what a baby is. But that's an abnormality. You don't make rules for a whole society to live by based on abnormalities. You go by what's common, right? And what's commonly true is that there are men and women in the world, and they are not the same. Let me see what time it is. Okay, 10 minutes. Okay, so that's kind of the philosophical way of thinking about this issue. Let me say something about um, psychology. Who knows who Sigmund Freud is? Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was, uh, technically he was a psychoanalyst, but very generally speaking, he was a psychologist. And he had... He put forth a lot of different ideas, and we're not going to get into his ideas. He was very much focused and centered on sexuality, and so that could be a whole talk in, its, in itself. But he, if you remember Sigmund Freud from your psychology classes, he was the one to put forth this idea that human nature and sexuality are tied together, that humans develop according to what he called erogenous zones. Do you all remember Sigmund Freud? You do. You're, you, you know about Sigmund Freud. So without getting into him, just understand that he was a very influential psychologist who practiced in Vienna. And just remember that it was with Freud. Freud is the father, if you will, of this idea that humanity and sexuality are tied together. That what it means to be... He came up with different... Um, a, a developmental plan a plan of human development that was based on how he felt that the human went through their sexual development. Those are a lot of different words. But let me just say this. He is on record as the first to more or less import sexuality into human nature, where sexuality is coextensive with the process of potencies being actualized in human nature. Don't worry about that, because that's actually um, a lot of philosophical jargon. But he was the first one to make it possible for us to accept, I feel like I'm a man or a woman. He made it possible to do that because he tied sexuality and human nature together. Whereas we, as rational people, sexuality is something that someone does, it's not who they are. So when you have, when a child is born, 
What's the first thing that a doctor will say? He says one of two things. What does he say? Boy or girl. Boy or girl. He doesn't say homosexual or heterosexual, right? Because what it means to be human is sourced in something as fixed as sex, as genes, as hormones. What it means to be a human has nothing to do with how you act sexually, psychologically, gender-wise. And so it's with Sigmund Freud that you have actually the beginning of this collapse between functionalism and determinism. Because he tied sexuality, which is quite functional, with humanity, which is quite essential. That is in Sigmund Freud. And so it's with him that the concept of existential schizophrenia <laughs> can be introduced. And so schizophrenia is basically a psychological um, term that basically um, characterizes someone who lives divorced from reality. People who are characterized as schizophrenics, they're living in their own worlds. They're not living in reality. And because of that, we usually hospitalize them because they're a danger to not only themselves but to everyone, right? That's schizophrenia, very generally speaking. Existential schizophrenia, it imports this idea that reality and personal meaning are the same. So that my reality is what's personally meaningful to me. If I feel like a man, then I'm a man. That's existential schizophrenia, and that's thanks to Freud. Freud was the first one to introduce the categories that 100 years later have saturated the culture. And this is why it's always important to understand where our ideas come from. The ideas that we have today, they come to us on the backs of a lot of philosophers and psychologists who were doing things years ago, but it's coming into the culture and the symptoms of those thoughts are what we're now dealing with because ideas, they always have consequences. <clears throat> That's the psychology. Let's talk about the more um, patriarchal aspect to this discussion because we're talking about feminism. So, what is patriarchy? Uh, the hierarchy of, uh, for example, the male rule over uh, a woman, in a sense. Okay, you said male ruling over women. Anyone else? A patriarchy is a, a family organization where the oldest male in the Are you reading? Is going to be, it will be the, um, <laughs> the highest ruler of the family, including his wife, his servants, and his children. That's wonderful. I thought you were reading my slide. That is a really good definition. That is exactly what patriarchy is. Patriarchy is, I'm not even going to repeat it, because what you just said is exactly right. That's exactly what patriarchy is. Patriarchy comes from two words. Patrios means father, and archy means rulership. Patriarchy is the rule of the fathers, by definition. Now, I like that you said what you said, George, because that's the common understanding of what patriarchy is. A male, a society where males rule women. I'm glad that you said that, but that's not what patriarchy is. Patriarchy is rule of the fathers. It's not rule of men. Rule of men is what we all have a problem with. But we ought not to have a problem with rule of fathers. 
Does that make sense? There's a reason why fathers ought to be the fundamental um, building block that persists in an organization. There's a reason for that. Right, and we all know what happens in a culture, we all have, know what happens in society where rule of the fathers is not present. We know what that looks like, right? So patriarchy, for all of feminisms, um, for all of their detestations of patriarchy, we need patriarchy. What we don't need is rulership of men, because men and women are equal, both created in the image and likeness of God. Men are not better than women, and women are not better than men. But there's a reason why we want societies that are organized patriarchally. And I'll say this as well before you, George. When you consider all of the anthropological research and the sociological research, there has been no society that has been matriarchal. So it used to be really popular, you know, in university, when I was in university, everyone was talking about matriarchal societies and all of these things you heard, you've maybe heard of that. No one talks about matriarchal societies now. You know why? Because I haven't found one. There has been no culture that has organized as the fundamental unit a mother. No, no culture has done that. We've always, and different cultures have found different ways to express what it looks like. Cultures, cultures express things differently, but every culture, human culture known to man, has organized society where fathers are the fundamental building block. You would say I was going to say, you know, coming from a Hispanic background, you know, the whole macho mentality, machismo is very present. So, you know, that's probably where my idea came from. Oh, sure. Because that's what we see down there, you know, it's a macho rule society. Yes, and so that's a good point too. So patriarchy is the norm. Patriarchy is what happens when all things are equal, right? But um, I was speaking with a friend not too long ago, and she uh, told me that Russia, she had done a lot of missions work in Russia. I'm sure Russia is not the only country, but in her doing mission work in Russia, Russian society is the type of society where women do everything. They're basically the back, backbone of society, um, women in Russia. But the reason why they're the background is because they have, Russia has a whole history that as a result of that history, a lot of the men are addicted to alcohol. Men, for uh, various reasons in Russia, typically tend to be um, unable to, to, um, to leave. Men in Russia typically, because of, of the alcoholism that's really much inbred into the culture, they're not able, the men, to, to do what they're supposed to do. So in that absence, the women come in and the women do what they have to do. That's all fine and good because that doesn't contradict what I'm saying. I'm saying that all things being equal, the women don't go ahead and run and rule and do all these things because men do things differently. One of the things that men do, and I'm going to get to another talk, one of the things that men do is they're naturally suited to do certain things that women aren't naturally suited to do certain things. So in certain cultures, um, certainly in my context, my background is Jamaican. It's so... Jamaican culture is very much known for strong women who rule and who do what they have to do because sometimes there's not the men around <laughs> to do that. So some cultures, um, some so, those sorts of things have to happen. But they, those things happen because they happen as a result of men not doing it. But they don't happen just naturally. 
because naturally all societies have been known to be set up in the type of way that fathers are really not men fathers. And we can talk about why that would be, but I don't think that we have time. So I'll say this, and, and perhaps I'll end with this. If anyone wants this presentation, let me know. I'm a little bit over one minute. Let me just end here. Sociological patriarchy is the type of patriarchy that we all do not like. Sociological patriarchy is this idea that social institutions have been designed, they have been created, and they have been perpetuated by men to completely cater to men. That's sociological patriarchy. And that's where the oppression comes in. Sociological patriarchy, we don't agree with that at all. We as, as rational people, we can disagree with sociological patriarchy. But we don't throw out patriarchy proper because there's something quite biblical, quite rational, quite practical about the rule of the fathers. But we reject sociological patriarchy and we want to uphold biblical patriarchy, which I don't have time to get to the biblical patriarchy. But I hope what I've done is in a complete way speaking about feminism so that it's very clear to you that the feminists are breaking down distinctions between men and women that are necessary for culture. And what's happening in the culture today, a.k.a. Bruce Jenner, a.k.a. transgenderism, a.k.a. abortion, and any other moral evil that you can talk about, all of those things are fundamentally tied to what we, as rational people, would say are the clear differences between men and women. Okay? And that's it. Thank you.